This morning's passage is John 11:17 through 37. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary, Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house Consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Good morning. In the way of a reminder or to bring you up to speed, if you weren't here last week, we've made our way through John's Gospel to chapter 11 now. Chapter 11 as a whole is largely the story of Jesus' love for a trio of siblings, two girls and or two women and a man, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who live together, at least near to one another, in a town called Bethany, which, according to verse 18, is near Jerusalem, which, as we will see soon, becomes significant during Passion Week, which we're almost to in John's Gospel. The story... And Jesus' love, story of chapter 11, Jesus' love, both come to their climax when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, which we'll get to next week. Along the way, which we've been in last week and this week as well, we encounter several other real and practical examples of Jesus loving and caring for this family. Last week, we considered the first 16 verses, and we saw that Jesus received word from Mary and Martha that their brother, whom Jesus loved, Lazarus, was sick. They urged him to come quickly. Please, Jesus, come come quickly. And Jesus reassured them through a messenger that this illness would not result in death. But But not death, but glory for both him and the Father. And then, curiously as we saw, He waited two more days before he began making his way to Lazarus, to Bethany. 
In our passage for this morning, Jesus arrived and remained the entire time. The whole scene is set on the outskirts of Bethany, and it all takes place after Lazarus died from his illness. Well, having heard that he was near, one of the sisters, Martha, ran to meet him, and then later, after meeting with him, encouraged, urged her sister Mary at Jesus' urging to meet with him as well. Both were grief-stricken, understandably, and attempting to make sense of why it took so long for Jesus to get there and what it might look like for him to help even now. For his part, Jesus grieved with each of these women. He shared in their grief. He did love them and love Lazarus, and he reassured them that even though it doesn't seem this way now, this would not ultimately end in tragedy. And in all of that, explained and demonstrated to her power and glory that she couldn't imagine. The big ideas here, the the main thing I want you all to take away is the deep compassion that is embedded in Jesus' love in this passage and the faith of the sisters, which shows up in different ways and to different degrees, and the unparalleled, we're going to get there, we're working towards there, but the unparalleled glory and resurrection power of Jesus. And the main takeaway is to trust in Jesus' promises, all of them, all the way from conversion and salvation to glorification, no matter what it looks like. His promises are always true. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this crystal clear reminder that what we think is best isn't always what's best. What we want, sometimes Deeply, sometimes to the point where we attach our entire sense of well-being to it is not always what we need most. What you have promised and what you accomplish in us is what we need most. Would you please use this passage and passages like it by the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us from longing for what we long for, transform us from that to longing for what you have for us according to your promises. God, change our appetites. Change us to love the things you love. Change us to desire your will for our lives more than our own will for our lives, or even more than what we believe your will for our lives is or should be. God, what a a passage this is to that end. How could they have wanted anything other than their brother not, not to die, to be healed from his sickness, and yet, in a way they could not yet imagine you had something far, far greater. Let us learn from this, I pray. Let us learn to trust you and love you and know that your love takes forms different than we often expect. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This portion of this story, this portion of John 11, is neatly divided into two parts. The first part records Jesus' encounter on the outskirts of Bethany with Martha. And the second part, Same spot, same backdrop with Mary. Let's consider each. Our passage opens with a clear time stamp. It tells us that by the time Jesus got to the edge of the village, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Look at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. This is significant in two key ways. Come with me here, Grace. This is a big deal. First, that it is significant in that it meant word would have had time to spread. It's not that he passed away and 
Jesus got there just after and no one yet knew and Jesus got there just in time to find out. But rather, it means that word had had time to spread and the text tells us explicitly that family and friends had had time to hear of this news and gather together there. As verse 19 says, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And the main point of this is that there were large crowds and lots of witnesses to the fact that Lazarus had died. If you don't know how this story ends, this becomes really important next week. Given where it's heading, both the story of Lazarus and the larger story of Jesus' ministry on earth and where that's going, these witnesses will prove exceedingly significant. Mark that in your brains. In this, in this is a simple but important reminder. Christ, Christianity is a religion rooted in facts and truth. Do you know this, kids? When you study history in school, it's not apart from this. Christianity is rooted in facts and truth. It is historical and it is real. It is not the product of someone's authentic self or personal truth. Christianity rises and falls on whether or not its claims actually happened. If they didn't, Christianity is false and we shouldn't be here right now. We're fools to be here. You just gave your money. That's even more foolish. If they did, and these witnesses will help us to see emphatically that they did, then Jesus is everything and there is no other place on earth that makes more sense for us to be than right here, right now. The second key is that four days was significant. In the Jewish mind, this really mattered. One commentator says it this way. Had Jesus left immediately, meaning as soon as he got word from Mary and Martha four days ago, if he had left immediately, Lazarus would still have been dead for two days. So nothing would have been gained by his immediate departure. However, There was something to be gained by waiting two days to make a two-day journey, which would put him four days out before setting out. This is why. This was the, the Jewish mindset of the day. I'm still quoting here. The spirit of the departed was thought to hover around the body of the deceased for three days in the hope of resuscitation. The rising of Lazarus after four days then would have been clearly seen as a manifestation of the glory of God. The way I see this here is that the Jews must have seen Princess Bride because they they both had the idea of different types of death. Sort of dead, mostly dead, and all dead, right? (laughs) Likewise, both believed that there was hope for sort of dead and mostly dead, but that things change significantly once you hit all dead status. You with me? Apparently some of you have seen this. So for the Jews, apparently, all dead status kicked in at four days. And for that reason, Jesus waited until then to completely separate himself from Miracle Max and all other possible interpretations of what was about to happen. That's the fuller significance. I told you last week, we'd get here this week, that's the fuller significance of verses 5 and 6 when we read, Now Jesus loved Mary or love Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Like they sent word to Jesus, our brother is dead, please come quickly. And you think every fiber of your being and mine is go, Jesus, go and save him, pray for him, lay hands on him and keep him from dying. That's what we think the, the, 
form of Jesus' love ought to have taken. But verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, knowing all of these things, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was so that he would begin his two-day journey to get there at four days. His love for them meant that he wanted what was best for them. And what was best for them was to understand that his power and glory were altogether different. That's awesome. Well, having caught word that Jesus was near, we see in verse 20 that Martha went to meet him. For reasons we're not told here, Mary remained seated in the house, though. Although she would come into the picture soon enough, initially she stayed behind, and it was just Martha and Jesus. Grace, how often do you function like that? I'm going to ask you that again in a second. Understandably distraught and confused, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. No greeting, no thanks for coming, no preamble at all. Just grief that her brother was dead and that Jesus hadn't come in time to do anything about it. Again, how often do you functionally act like that? How often... With Jesus present in your life to bless you, do you rebuke him for not being present or blessing you in the ways you determine that he should? How often do you find yourself disappointed because of the circumstances in your life in spite of Jesus' repeated promises to use all of them, sweet and bitter alike, to bless you and accomplish the greatest good for you? In other words... When your hope is in Christ, whatever form your circumstances take is better for you than every other form your circumstances might take. Martha needed to learn that. While her grief over the loss of her brother was certainly appropriate, let us learn from this passage the folly of thinking we know better than Jesus about what's best for us and the people in our lives. Well, nevertheless, misguided and discouraged as she may have been, Martha remained hopeful that Jesus could still do something about her brother's death. Therefore, she said to him, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. In effect, here's what I think she was saying. You obviously didn't quite do it right on the front end, Jesus, but perhaps you could still do something on the back end. It's not too late for God to work here. We know that, right? Right? And you have unprecedented access to him. No one, God doesn't listen to anyone like he listens to you, right? Right, Jesus? Now, now interestingly, if you paid attention when Johanna was reading, you, you already picked up on this. It's not exactly clear what Martha wanted Jesus to ask God to give. It's not exactly clear. But Jesus' reply would have cut straight to her greatest Hope when it seems that she hadn't even allowed herself to continue. We don't, we don't really know what she wanted Jesus to ask God for, but Jesus' reply was apparently something greater than she was, she had the courage to even think of yet. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Again, Jesus knew Martha's unspoken desire. It's the same as any of ours would have been. Jesus, please get here in time to keep him from dying. That didn't happen. Bring him back. Again, evidently this hadn't occurred to her yet, but Jesus knew that this was her greatest desire. Above all, like any of us, she wanted a resurrection miracle, even if she hadn't allowed herself to consider it as a legitimate possibility. Perhaps surprisingly for us, for her certainly, without qualification or amendment, 
he assured her that she would get just what she secretly hoped for. Let me ask you, Grace, what's the biggest thing you've ever asked Jesus for? Was it as big as a resurrection? He is, as we're about to see, entirely able. Likewise, what's the tightest link, the shortest gap between what what you've prayed for and asked of Jesus, however big or small it was, and his answer? Has it ever been this tight? He is, as we're about to see, entirely able, Grace. Go to him with your requests. Trust in him. Hope in him. He is able still. What remarkable news it was that Jesus just gave Martha. What do we expect her to reply? How how do we expect her to reply? With gratitude and thanksgiving and praise, right? He just told her that her brother will rise even though she was too afraid to ask for it. Well, as surprising as Jesus' answer was, Martha's response to it was just as surprising. Rather than resulting in thanksgiving and praise, Martha was skeptical. Again, it's almost as if she never even considered the possibility that Jesus might or perhaps could have done something so remarkable as he just told her he was going to do and is just about to do. And her skepticism led to misunderstanding. She assumed that he was speaking in eschatological terms rather than immediate terms. Therefore, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection day, or in the resurrection on the last day. And if we're to finish her thought, it was probably something like, but that's not really what I asked. I want some type of comfort now, Jesus. Some type of comfort. I I know at some point that'll happen, but I'm hurting now. He's gone now. Again, can't we be like that as well, Grace? We're so often so slow to recognize God's kindness in our lives because it doesn't take the form we think it should have taken. Unfortunately, I recently fell into this trap myself. For years, along with many of you, I've marveled at how spectacularly God has blessed our little church with physical fruitfulness. Dozens and dozens of babies over the years. On one hand, that's entirely natural. It's worked the way it's supposed to work. And on the other hand, there's also something clearly supernatural about it as well. Well, a couple of years ago, a few of the or a couple of weeks ago, a few of the original planters of Grace Church were here for the first time in 20ish years, right? And I said, I asked them, uh, "What is something that you notice that's different from Grace Church today than it was 20 years ago when you were last here?" And one of the things they mentioned quickly was the number of kids. And here's here's the thing that I find truly remarkable. I, it, not sure why, but this never really occurred to me that this could be the case. It shows that I still have a ways to go as your pastor. But they told me one of the things they most prayed for was that. Okay, seems like my initial response should have been gratitude and praise and thanksgiving. Just like with Martha, your brother will rise. Instead, I immediately went into rational mode and thought, Is that a direct connection between that and this? Could it be that? How do I know that? And just my my head just started spinning with these rational thoughts, wondering if the unusual fruitfulness we've experienced really is the kind is really the result of the prayers that they prayed. I'm just like Martha. Well, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus' kindness never runs out for his people. 
Martha made one request. Bring me some kind of comfort now, Jesus. Jesus granted it beyond what she could even have imagined, but Martha mistook him for promising something different, a future blessing. Lazarus would be raised at the fullness of time. Well, instead of correcting her, Jesus upped it again. She asked for something, Jesus upped it. She misunderstood, and so he upped it again. Jesus has already claimed, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And now in the fifth of his seven I am statements, in response to Martha's confusion, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha was hoping for something, anything, to immediately stop the pain. Jesus went one better. And in order to make sure she didn't misunderstand him this time, he explained exactly what he meant by it. Whoever believes in me, Martha, whoever believes in me, though he die, remember your brother, though he die, yet shall he live again. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The gist of what Jesus put in front of Martha is the simple fact that her aims, as big as they might have been, whatever they were, were far too small. She wanted at most a resurrection for her brother, but standing in front of her was the resurrection, the life. And if she or anyone else would receive that, Grace, if you this morning would receive that, if you would share this good news with anyone and they would receive that, it is no longer death to die. Death is no longer to be that which we fear above all for any who live and believe in Jesus. Jesus was about to prove that in part by raising Lazarus from the dead, and then in full by rising from the dead himself as the true firstborn among the dead. Having promised something greater than Martha had dared imagined, Jesus put in front of her the great question of all time. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? I just told you. Do you believe it? Again, this is the question that every one of us, kids, you're not exempt from this. Guests, you're not exempt from this. Family of members, you're not exempt from this. Your neighbors are not exempt from this. People to the ends of the earth are not exempt from this question. We must consider this. We must come to grips with this. We must answer this. We are beckoned over and over in John's gospel. As you know, he wrote it in order that we would believe in Jesus as the Christ. We are beckoned over and over in John's gospel to receive Jesus as the Christ and promised over and over that if we do, we will be made alive spiritually, though we are dead, and never die again spiritually. Do you believe this, Grace? You're just saying that you did. Do you believe this? Do you live and believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life? Is that the single and great hope of your life and eternal life? Is that the lens through which you see all things? John has shared example after example of why it should be for all of us. What is it? What's more? We're meant to tell the world about who Jesus is and what he offers. And then ask exactly what Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? It is not enough for them to know these facts. Knowledge of Jesus and the things he said and done are not enough. The world must believe, truly believe them. And so we share and call them to respond in faith. Well, confronted with this question, Martha gave the answer we all must give and pray and work towards the world giving. She said, yes, Lord, I believe. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. That is the one that has been promised for ages and generations. What an awesome, faithful response. By God's grace, Martha was able to see and hear Jesus for who he was and is. And therein truly believe in Jesus for who he was and is. And therein, though she die, she will never die. Well, Martha was convinced and impressed, clearly. So much so that when Jesus sent her back to get her sister, she left. She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Evidently, Martha, or Mary's trust in her sister and Jesus were high enough that when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Again, Grace Church, may we learn from these faithful women. When she heard it, that is, when she heard her sister tell of Jesus' summons, she rose quickly and went to him. May we be as quick to respond to Jesus' call and commands as Mary was here. Grace, I... I want to say this 19 different ways. I'm only going to say it about three. But may we stop trying to fit our obedience around our own pursuits, our own hobbies, our own kids' hobbies. May we stop trying to fit our obedience around our comfort, our plans. May we stop putting off Jesus' summons until a more convenient time comes along. Be warned by the seriousness of Jesus' reply to the man who said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Just let me first bury my own father. Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. May we be warned by that. And may we stop believing the lie that there is anything greater than a call from the resurrection and the life, the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Which of Jesus' commands do you need to stop putting off today? Maybe the command to know what his commands are so that you can obey them. Which which of Jesus' commands do you need to stop putting off today? Who do you need to be reconciled with? Who do you need to apologize to and seek forgiveness from or extend forgiveness to? Who do you need to serve? What sins do you need to repent of? Or who do you need to lovingly confront in their sin? Do you need to begin having faithful quiet times again? Do you need to make the Great Commission a priority, a greater priority in your life? It's the last time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever and called them or asked them, do you believe? Do you need to stop telling lies? Do you need to confess a secret sin? Is there a specific promise of Jesus that you've been reluctant to trust? Well, for reasons we're not told, Jesus still refused to enter into Bethany. And therefore, according to verse 30, Mary had to go to him, which she gladly did. May we learn from her. And she found Jesus right where she'd been when he was talking to Martha. Presumably out of concern for Mary, the friends and family who'd gathered to comfort the sisters followed Mary when she ran out of the house. Apparently she was trying to sneak out, which is why Martha told her in secret, but they saw her and they went with her. John tells us they did so even though they didn't really know where she was going. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. This sought to remind us of the love of Jesus that we saw last week, the love that you and I are called to extend to others. The love of Mary's consolers was marked by concern and willingness to move toward Mary to help and what they presumed to be a time of overwhelming grief. Rather than lead the crowd to Lazarus's tomb, however, 
Mary was leading them to Jesus. In her grief, desperation, and trust, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. She threw herself down before Jesus, placing herself before him for mercy. Like her sister, without any introduction or greeting, at least not that John records, she immediately poured out her heart to Jesus, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, just like Martha, my brother would not have died. Both sisters were of one mind. They knew that Jesus could have prevented the death of their brother. They were hurt and confused by the fact that he didn't, but remained hopeful that something still might be done by him. There was deep and profound faith in their lament. What do I mean by that? There's a lot for us to learn here as well. Grace, there is a way to trust, to be faithful, before God answers our prayer. You you pray. There's some need that you recognize in your life or in the life of someone you care about. And you take that to God in prayer. There is a way to be faithful before God answers your prayer. And there's a way to be faithful after. Beforehand, faithfulness trusts that God hears. He hears what you say. He hears what you offer, whether in your mind or out loud. He cares and he is able. Faithfulness before God answers includes those things. For these reasons, we pray expectantly and hopefully, knowing that God is never never bothered by our requests and he always hears them in love. Well, afterward, after God answers, faithfulness looks a little different. If he grants our request, faithfulness pours itself out in gratitude. And here's the key. It is more satisfied in the God who answered our prayer than whatever answer he gave. Whatever you desired from God in your prayer Faithfulness means delighting in God even more than that thing. But what if he doesn't? Like Mary and Martha. What if he doesn't? What does faithfulness look like in that situation? There's a way to be faithful even when God doesn't answer, at least the way we ask. That kind of faithfulness doesn't pretend it doesn't sting. It it doesn't put on the face of some fake happiness. But it is also not hopelessly despairing. It acknowledges the pain of the loss, but continues to look to Jesus for comfort in belief in his promise that he has a better answer for us than we could even think to ask, whatever it might be. That's what Mary was doing here, and that's what we ought to do when we find ourselves in her shoes. And this kind of faithfulness is perhaps best seen in contrast with the faithlessness of some of the Jews. Unlike Mary and Martha, who, though grieved, continued to trust in Jesus, verse 37, some of the Jews, those who had followed Mary to Jesus, said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Both Mary in this situation and these Jews grieved Lazarus' death. And both understood somehow Jesus to have been able to do something about it, having witnessed him perform at least one other miracle themselves. But Mary responded to the disappointment in faith, or at least these Jews, in doubt. The rest of the passage describes a profound sadness that permeated Mary, the rest of the Jews who were with her, and even Jesus. Their grief was over Lazarus. Some of the grief was over Lazarus, Mary, and Jesus, and the Jews all had that. Some of it was grief over the grief of the sisters, which is, the text tells us that tells us that the Jews who were with her had that kind of grief, and grief from Jesus over the grief of the Jews, over the grief of the sisters. 
it tells us as well. Verses 33 to 36 are profoundly emotional and moving. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. At that Jesus wept. And the Jews, in seeing him weep, said, See how he loved him. Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. There's compassion in this. There is sadness in this. And there is even a touch of anger in this. Jesus was filled with emotion as he considered the death of his friend, the sinfulness of sin to pay out such treacherous wages, the shaky and fleeting faith of the children of Abraham, and the grief of everyone present. Jesus felt these things for all those things. And yet Jesus remained steadfast, firmly anchored in his resolve to do the will of the Father. Though deeply moved and greatly troubled, Jesus determined to help in the best possible way. Give you one more thing here. One of the more important dis- distinctions I've heard in the last several years is between sympathy and empathy. Now, a lot of this comes down to how you define your terms. But one of my favorite authors, just recently, I heard this two days ago, said that empathy is like jumping into a rushing river to save your friend. And sympathy is like throwing them the life raft tied to a rope. Both are expressions, or can be at least, of compassion and love. Both mean good things for your friend. And yet, while your friend might prefer empathy in the moment, you in the river with them being carried away also, sympathy almost always offers the better choice or better chance of providing real help. As we'll see next week, it was deep sympathy that that Jesus brought with him to Bethany. He cared profoundly for this family, but instead of merely throwing himself into their grief, he grieved and kept his feet on the solid ground of the will of God in order to be able to help most fully and effectively. As we saw last week, Jesus' genuine love, as we saw last week, genuine love for another seeks always what is best for them, no matter the cost. And in a world that is increasingly confused about what's best, love often looks like not love, and not love often looks like love to them. So let us look, therefore, to Jesus once again. He did not give this family what they most wanted in the moment because he loved them too much for that. Instead, he gave them what they most needed. He grieved with them, but not on their terms. He grieved with them in a diff- with a different kind of hope and trust in the plan of the Father. In all of this, and in conclusion, we see the true nature and expression of love and the rightness of trusting in Jesus no matter what. Since Jesus is the resurrection and the life, He expressed those truths most fully by rising from the dead. You know where this is going. This is going from this passage and this grief to the resurrection of Lazarus, which takes us to the resurrection of Jesus, which takes us to the resurrection of all who hope in Christ. That's where this is going. And we know that, and we celebrate that. And in that, we cannot miss the infinite and eternal love and trustworthiness of the triune God. May we give ourselves wholly, entirely, completely, thoroughly, without any reservation to believing in him and following him in all that we do. And in order that, though we die, yet shall we live.